Well, gentlemen, how many cows is your wife worth? <laughs> now, see, that's an old question. Gordon, I don't have any batteries, so this is not going to record today. So. <laughs> and, and Dan, are you going to get me a battery? It's still record? Okay, it's still record. Uh, That's an old question, one we may have dealt with before, and you'll see it as we get there, but it's a different context, so I thought it was worth asking. Better have the right answer written on your page. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to go through three particular scriptures today, and uh, we will read them as we get there. So we won't, we won't read them now. So we better pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes. Give us insight into what your word says, that we might understand this, that we might live this. Lord, that we might be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. delivered an address on June 29, 1870 before the Phi Beta Kappa organization at Harvard University, and in it he related his experience of finding the meaning of life and of the single all-encompassing truth that directs the path of man. So let me read to you his findings. I once inhaled a pretty full dose of ether with the determination to put on record at the earliest moment of regaining consciousness the thought I should find uppermost in my mind. The mighty music of the triumphal march into nothingness reverberated through my brain and filled me with a sense of infinite possibilities which made me an archangel for the moment. The veil of eternity was lifted. The one great truth which underlies all human experience and is the key to all mysteries that philosophy has sought in vain to solve flashed upon me in a sudden revelation. Henceforth, all was clear. A few words had lifted my intelligence to the level of knowledge of the cherubim. As my natural condition returned, I remembered my resolution, and staggering to my desk, I wrote in ill-shaped, straggling characters the all-encompassing truth still glimmering in my consciousness. After my faculties returned to me, I ran back to, to my desk to behold the single most important truth that I was certain all of mankind needed to know, and I had written, A strong smell of turpentine prevails throughout. Now, I've talked about what smells do to me, so this is nothing new. Most perfumes, unfortunately, just make me ill. Uh, some give me a headache. Some even will spark a, a, a migraine uh, in my head. So uh, my lovely wife has been relegated to only one perfume for the length of time that I have known her. And it's a great perfume because I love it, and it doesn't give me headaches, so that's really good. And now, as you would come to think that might be a kind of an issue within my house having all girls and girls are known for loving smelly things and uh, perfumes and lotions and stuff like that we have a hard and fast rule in my house you can't do that we don't have candles that smell in my house you can't get into the car in which I'm traveling in and put on lotion 
uh, or anything that smells because then we're trapped in the car and I can feel my head starting to reverberate. Um, now, I'm not against smells. You know, there are some smells that I love. You know, butter, garlic, and onions sautéing in a pan. Uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Anything chocolate, anything cho- If my wife would just dab a little dark chocolate back here, boy. <laughs> um, you know, what else? Freshly mowed hay. Even though I'm allergic to it, I love that smell. Babies, most of the time. Fireworks, new cars, things like that. There are smells that don't bother me at all, but some just just make me crazy. Smells can be very powerful. They can take us to places and memories that strike us, and we can just relish in those memories. Other smells take us to places we don't want to go, okay? Places that are sad or places that are bad memories, but smells can do that. Now, where's all this leading, okay? I want you to know this room smells, I didn't say stinks, I said smells, okay? This place and you who are here today have a very distinct odor. Now, as I said, it's not the kind of smell that gives me a migraine. It is a good smell. It is a a good smell. There is an odor here. As Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a strong smell prevails throughout. But the smell of this room is not turpentine. The smell of this room is Jesus. Because there's a smell to believers. There is a smell to righteousness. There is a smell and an odor and a fragrant aroma to those who are attempting to live out lives of holiness. Who are pursuing the things of righteousness. My senses are telling me that there is a smell of compassion and of mercy here. That there's a smell of grace abounding. A distinct aroma of holiness is coming from this room. Now, there are other smells here. I don't want you to get a big head and think that you all are righteous. There are, there's a little stink that may be coming from me. But every once in a while, you understand that we do fall into the stink category and not the fragrant aroma category. That is the struggle of the Christian life. We will not have a perfect odor about us until we stand before the Lord completely cleansed. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the rest that I have prepared for you. Then the smell of righteousness will prevail pervade everything about us. But I want you to know that today and recently, you all have been smelling pretty good, pretty good. Odors and smells and aromas are part of Scripture from the very beginning. Usually they are tied to what we understand as the sacrifice, and they would sacrifice an animal, and then they would burn it, be a burnt offering, and that burnt offering was, from Scripture, termed a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. Now, we don't usually think of, we think of God in in human form, but the catechism tells us that God is spirit, okay? All right, so it's our projection upon him that puts him in a human form, but it says in his nostrils it is a fragrant aroma. The word aroma is used three times in the New Testament. The first time it is used here in Philippians chapter 4. So let's look there, verse 18. Paul is talking in this context about the collection that he has been taking for the church in Jerusalem. And he's been going around to these churches. And here in Philippians, now this is his favorite group of people. He loves the church at Philippi. It is his joy and his crown. And verse 18 says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Ephrodosius what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
well-pleasing to God. See, these terms come out, that Paul is using, come out of the Old Testament, that fragrant aroma before the Lord. And when it comes to giving in this context, Paul says that the, the, the issue is you're not giving to me. Okay, in, in this context, it wouldn't be you're, you're not giving to me. You're not giving to this church. You're not giving to the missionary that comes through. You're giving as if you gave directly to the Lord. Okay, as if you write that check, and when you tear it out, you go like this, and the Lord takes it. That is our, the giving as believers. That is who we give to for his work and for his glory. So do you, the question here in this context is, do you give out of a grateful heart of love and worship, or do you give grudgingly? It would be as if it was Judy's birthday, and I knew it was her birthday, and, and I felt obligated to buy her something. You know, I, and I, I take this gift to her, and I say, here, Jude, I know it's your birthday, and I, I felt that I had to get you something. And besides, the next-door neighbor's wife got something so great, she's been talking about it for months, and I didn't want to look bad, so here you go. Now, how would she receive that? No, no Judy wouldn't. <laughs> but it would not gladden her heart. How about that? There would not be joy in her heart to receive from me something that I gave grudgingly. Okay? The same is true of what we give to the Lord. The Lord is not, his heart is not glad. It is not a fragrant aroma in his nostrils when I go, I've got to break this check. Or I gotta do. It's a fragrant aroma when we say, Lord, this is what I have and I'd love to give more. And, and this is what I, I want to bless the church with. Okay? Now, now, this reminded me of a story. And, and we've looked at this before, but it's so good. We, I have to do it again. And this is Johnny Lingo's A Cow Wife. Okay? Let's talk about a glad heart in what we give and what we do. Now, the story takes place on a primitive Pacific island called Kinawata, where a man paid a dowry for his wife in cows. Two or three cows could buy a decent wife. Four or five cows could buy an outstanding wife. Okay? But Johnny Lingo had offered an unheard of eight cows for Sarita. And everybody considered Sarita to be very plain and somewhat slow. Certainly not an eight-cow wife, probably not a six-cow wife. I mean, if Johnny had been in his right mind when he did this, he probably could have got her for two. And if he drove a hard bargain, her dad may have given her up for one just to get her out of the house. So the, the person telling this, who's telling this story is, is just intrigued with this. So she goes and finds Johnny Lingo because... He ha she has to find out what this eight-cow wife looks like. I mean, is this the plain woman that everybody talked about, who everybody thought Johnny Lingo got swindled over? So she goes to Johnny Lingo. And, he walks in, and she walks in, and she sees Johnny Lingo's wife, Sarita. And she is stunning. She is picturesque. She is statuesque. Uh, what, what, you put the esques in there. She is fantastic. And she thinks, is this the same woman that everybody in town said was only a one or two cow wife? How can this be? How did she become so beautiful? That was the question for Johnny Lingo. And he said, did you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband bargained down her price? What would it be like when all the wives get together and one says, well, you know, my husband paid four cows for me. And the other says, well, he paid five cows for me. What does the two cow wife or the one cow wife say at times like that? He said, I did not want my Sarita to think that. 
I wanted my Sarita to be happy, yes, but more than that, I wanted to understand that she is different. See, things happen to change a woman, and this is Johnny Lingo talking. Things happen inside and things happen outside, but one of the things that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kinawata, Sarita believed that she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is worth more than any woman on the island. And the person interviewing says, but, but then you wanted, he said, I wanted to marry Sarita, and I loved her more than any other woman. But, but, and Johnny says, I wanted an eight-cow wife. And that's what he got. See, he gave out of a gladness. He, he bought his wife because there was joy in his heart, and he gladly paid more than anybody else would because that was the joy of his heart. Paul is saying that an offering from the heart given with joy is pleasing to the Lord. No matter how much you give, if done grudgingly or with a bad attitude, it's, not a, it's a stink in the nostrils of the Lord. It will not bring you any joy either. Because there is great joy in the sweet aroma of generosity, great joy in knowing that you have an eight-cow wife. So, gentlemen, the answer to the question is eight cows. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, let's go there. Ephesians chapter 5. This is the second use of that word, fragrant, in the New Testament. And this applies specifically and in context to the offering of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to spend much time on this one. It is straightforward and plain. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. In fact, I'll read verse 1 for good measure as well. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and those surrounding. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It was the obedience of Jesus Christ as he left the right hand of the Father and took on the form of a man and gave his life for us on a cross, every, that place where everybody thought was cursed, yet it is the place of our salvation, the place of the shedding of the perfect blood of the perfect spotless lamb. It was that obedience and that sacrifice that was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, a pleasing and fragrant aroma. The father looked down and took this great pleasure in the honor that the son gave to him in obeying his will. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is a fragrant aroma for the Lord. Now let's go to the last one, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have looked at this previously in a different context but this is such an important issue here in this aroma before the Lord and how believers are called to live and what that means, not just before the Lord, but to the world around us. We have to look at it again. Here we find that there is both a fragrant aroma and a stench that comes from the life of the believer. It is the same smell, but it is how it is perceived. And we'll see that in just a moment. The fragrance consists in the knowledge of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. 
We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? The fragrance consists of the knowledge of Christ as rightly applied in holy living. Okay? God considers the righteous life to be a pleasing fragrance in his nostrils. The stench of the Christian life applies to those who do not believe. They perceive that smell of righteousness as not fragrance, but as a stench. They cannot tolerate our odor of righteousness. Much like the perfume that you would wear or that you would buy for your wife, and when she puts it on, it is like a moth to the flame, and you are drawn to her. That smell is great to you. It gives me a headache. Okay? It's the same smell, but it is how it is perceived. Those who are perishing perceive the sweet perfume of the smell of righteousness as a smell of death and as a stink, as something offensive to their nostrils. To those who are believing the smell of righteousness is this fragrant aroma. It is this joy. It is, it is garlic and butter and onions, and it is great. It is apple pie, and it is homemade bread. It is everything that is good. In fact, it is even better than those things. Because when we see the life of the believer lived out in righteousness, not only do we rejoice, but it is a fragrant offering and a fragrant smell to the Lord as well. But for the believer, it is a good smell, but they perceive it as a stench because it convicts them of their own unrighteousness. When they see righteousness lived out in our lives, two things happen to the unbeliever. One, their heart is touched and they are drawn to Christ and they go from a perceiving of of unrighteousness and a perceiving of a stench to a perceiving of a holy and gracious smell. Their hearts are drawn to Christ. The other outcome is that they are repelled from Christ. They see righteousness and they are convicted in their own heart and they go, I can't stand that. Okay? It can't be my fault that I'm unrighteous. It has to be your fault because you are righteous. See, they turn it around. That fragrant aroma that comes from you, they qualify it as a stench and they can't take it and they are, drawn, they are moved further away from Christ because of the example of holiness before you. Now the two words in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2 tie this together, and it's a great example, and and I'm sorry to use this illustration again, but it is so good in this context that we have to see it again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. There is the triumph and there is the sweet aroma. When Paul uses those two words together, everybody in Corinth understands what he is talking about. Okay, he, They understand what he is talking about. The Romans had what they called a triumph. A triumph. It was the highest honor that could ever be paid to a victorious Roman general. Now, before any general could be granted a triumph, he must achieve certain things. He must be the actual commander-in-chief on the field and not a secondary leader. The campaign that he engaged in must have been completely finished, the region which was conquered completely satisfied, and the victorious troops brought home. Furthermore, according to Roman history, 5,000 of the enemy at least must have fallen in one engagement. That means it had to be a slaughter. Furthermore, as a result of this campaign, a positive extension of Roman territory must have been gained. 
not merely a disaster averted, not merely a civil war quelled. It has to be a positive expansion of the Roman Empire. Triumphs did not happen very often. In an actual triumph, the procession of the victorious general that marched through the streets came through the streets of Rome all the way to the capital. It was a big deal, and everybody turned out for it. The sequence of how they lined up was very, very important. Of course, the first ones to walk through in the parade were the politicians, the senates, and the officials. Then came the trumpeters who were heralding what was coming. Then came the spoils that were taken from the land that had been conquered. Then came painted pictures of the land that had been conquered, of the citadels, and often models of the citadels and ships that had been conquered. And then there followed the white bull, which was to be offered as a sacrifice to the Roman gods at the end of the triumph, at the end of the procession. Then came the captives, the wretched captives, the generals, the soldiers who had survived. They were chained and they were shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability executed. And then came the punishers who would walk behind the prisoners and beat them with rods and beat them with whips and the crowd would cheer and throw things at, at the captives. And then there came the musicians and then there came the priests who were swinging the incense and, and the fragrance here. And then came the general himself at the end in a chariot pulled by four horses. He was robed in purple with gold trim all over it. In his hand, he carried an ivy scepter with the Roman eagle on top of it, and on top of his head, his slave would hold over the crown of Jupiter. And after him came his family, and then finally, at the very end, came the conquering army. And they would shout as they walked through the streets, triumph, triumph, triumph. So everybody knew that this was a very special deal, very impressive. To the Romans and all who stood along the street cheering, it was a sweet Aroma, Victory was a sweet aroma. But to those captives, to those who were being beaten, to those who were about to be executed, it was a stench. That incense that the priests would fling, that was a stench in their nostrils. Acts chapter 4. Let's turn over there. One thing, two things I really want you to, to walk away with today. How do you get this aroma on you? How do you smell fragrant before the Lord? You know, when I go out in the backyard and I take my dog and we throw the ball and I chase him around and I wrestle with him and, you know, I do all those dog owner things, I rub his belly and then I come back into the house. You know what the girls say? Oh, Dad, you stink like that dog. (laughs) Well, of course, I've been out in the backyard rolling around with the dog. Wouldn't it be great if somebody walked up to you and said, Oh, you smell like Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They had the fragrant aroma of Jesus all about them. They had been rolling around in life with Jesus. They had been sitting under his teaching. They had followed his example. They knew who Jesus was. They spent time with him. They smelled like Jesus. I mean, what a great compliment to be paid. 
if somebody would come up to you and say, you, you smell like Jesus. Secondly, why do I think this room smells? It's a cumulative effect. I've seen you grown in your love for one another, in your willingness to adjust your lives for the kingdom, your generosity, your financial giving, your devotion to the things of Christ. Now, of course, there are bad smells that come from each of us every once in a while. But you're all smelling better and better. Now, it has been my privilege to be here for 11 years this month, okay? And we have been through quite a bit together. We have seen the Lord guide us through some very difficult times, and in other congregations, we have seen them, those similar times, they've consumed one another in frustration and anger and and all these things. But what I saw here is that it drew us together in, in graciousness. We became encouragers to one another. We began to smell more like Christ, just like the fires that refine us. Some dross has been drawn off, and we have come out with our eyes on Christ and said this is where he wants us to be. This is how we are to act. This is how we are to smell. I watched all of you become more trusting, more encouraging to one another and to me. I've seen you be willing to step out in faith and to act in ways that I didn't think. I'm shocked at. Shocked at. And, and I just wanted to make sure that you understood what a blessing it is to be here. From the things of the word of God, how I see this congregation grow. And I want you to understand that you all smell pretty good. Let's pray. Lord, to be a fragrant offering to you. To smell like Jesus. That, that's what we want, Lord. We want to smell more and more like Christ. We want to get in and roll around with Jesus in his word. We want to get around, we, we want to roll around with him in prayer, in worship, in life. We want to be applying the things of Christ so that to believers and to you we are an aroma of righteousness. And to those who do not believe, Lord, a stench that you might use our imperfect righteous living, to work on their hearts. Draw them unto yourself, Lord. We know that all will not believe, but there are those out here, out there that you have chosen, you have called, and are living out of righteousness and holiness as a fragrant offering is part of that process of communicating the gospel to them. Come upon us, Lord that we would be ever sweeter before you. We will be imperfect, but help us to be forgiving. We will not all move at the same time or all make progress in the same fashion, but help us to be encouragers to one another, to hold one another accountable, to speak words of peace and graciousness to one another and to those around us, Lord, that the things of Christ would be seen. They would be seen in our actions. They would be heard from the words that come from our mouths and that you would receive the praise and the glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.